It's Monday, January 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We're learning more about what led to the targeted strike to kill Iran's General Soleimani, and it was all based on intelligence that there would be some attack on U.S. embassies, according to President Trump. However, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper said that he did not see specific evidence, but that he still believed an attack would occur. Iran is also facing protests from its people after they admitted to shooting down the Ukrainian jetliner, killing 176 people. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to break it all down. Next, Impossible Foods unveiled its latest creation at CES last week. Get ready for Impossible Pork. The company is aiming to get kosher and halal certification to open up their product to more people. So we spoke to a lifelong practicing Muslim who tried the plant-based pork for her thoughts on it as someone who has never eaten pork before. Abrar Alhidi, reporter at CNET, joins us for this and also how Muslim and Jewish religious leaders feel about fake pork. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. He didn't cite a specific piece of evidence. What he said is he probably, he believed... Are you saying there wasn't been, one? I didn't see one with regard to four embassies. What I'm saying is I share the president's view that probably my expectation was they were going to go after our embassies. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. So it seems that the escalation in conflict with Iran has subsided for now, thank, thankfully. And we're learning a little bit more about what happened you know, the United States has maintained that the reason why they targeted General Qasem Soleimani was that there was some type of imminent threat against the United States. And um, officials really didn't say exactly what was happening. I think the president uh, said on a Fox News interview that there might have been the possibility of four embassies being targeted. But we have the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, hitting the Sunday talk shows, saying that he didn't really see specific evidence that something was going to be uh, targeted but it was just kind of this general sense they knew something was going to happen, so they had to act. That's right. We saw President Trump get on Fox News and relay what seemed like a very specific threat that General Soleimani had been plotting to attack at least four other U.S. embassies in the region. After those attacks were staged on the U.S. embassy in Iraq, some U.S. senators who had been in a briefing last week where the administration had briefed them on what they knew ahead of this killing of Soleimani said that that was not something they were told in the briefing, that they were not given those details, which raised questions about whether or not President Trump was being accurate in his portrayal of the threat. There was some criticism, even among those in his own party, that he may have been misrepresenting the evidence that he was using to justify this killing, this very targeted killing of an Iranian official. As you said, Esper, uh, the Secretary of Defense, trying to sort of maybe uh, find some middle ground to say, okay, well, we didn't have such specific evidence, but we knew something was going to happen. I think that the, the fact that this is sort of appears to be calming to some degree, that there appears to be a cooling, that the retaliation that we saw the response from Iran, at least as it was designed, had not killed any Americans, although we now have learned that they did accidentally, it would seem, shoot down this passenger jet, so right. it was not without loss of life. That seems to have maybe calmed things between the nations. And for that reason, I think questions like that going unanswered or criticisms like that of the president probably going to, going to start to move on in the wake of the cooling. One of the other interesting things that we learned, too, was this Swiss back channel that the United States and Iran were using hours after the strike that killed General Soleimani. 
the Trump administration sent a message to Tehran saying, don't escalate after this. And there was this back and forth uh, through, uh, you know, of all things, encrypted facts, they said. And, um, and you know, this was just a, it kind of highlighted how big a role the Swiss play in this back channel. They've been our kind of intermediary since the 80s, I think. That's right. Most people don't realize that the Swiss have for decades now served as an intermediary between the United States and Iran. We don't have official diplomatic relationships with Iran. And that means that there's no embassy here in Washington for the Iranians and that the U.S. don't have an embassy in Tehran. But what most people don't realize is here in D.C., where I am, in the Swiss embassy, there's an office for the Iranians that the country allows Iran to station diplomats there so that if there is a need to have conversations, if there are Iranians in the U.S. who need access to their government, they can get it. These sort of offices or sort of back channels have allowed the two countries to communicate in important times. You talked about the communications after this attack, an attempt to ensure that there wasn't an immediate escalation that got really bad quickly. But we also know that in the past, when there have been other international problems, when there have been problems in the region in which it would benefit the U.S. and Iran to have some communications or some levels of coordination, they're able to go through these back channels. And the most important thing that we learned from that Swiss back channel is is that Iran was done after that last missile strike. They weren't going to do any more, which helped the president obviously make his decision not to escalate things further. You mentioned that uh, downed passenger jet that killed 176 people when it went down. The Iranians, for I think it was about three days, they said, uh, you know, it wasn't our fault. It might have been mechanical failures or whatnot, but over mounting evidence... They finally had to admit that they did shoot down the plane. I think they said it was human error. And then protests erupted all over the place. A bunch of Iranians basically saying that the government was corrupt, you know, going against the supreme leader, which is a big no-no there. Uh, Tell us about those protests. I mean, we have to remember that while the tensions in the region are really high between Iran and its neighbors, there's also quite a bit of tensions within the country. It's a large country. It's an educated country. There's quite a bit of a sort of a middle class of some sort and an upper middle class students. And there has been at times real agitation within the country about the direction of its leadership, that its inability to access the Western world because of some of the decisions of their leadership. The U.S. imposes economic sanctions, which have made it banking and the economy very difficult there. And so we see these protests in the wake of this, this decision, you know, by Iran to respond and and without having, you know, without, without avoiding a cost, um, especially because many of those people were innocent Iranian civilians on the plane who right. were killed. And so we do see these protests. We saw President Trump tweeting that the government should allow these protests to go forward. They have been very tenuous recently. And their decision to allow some of these protests and not shut them down versus decisions to shut them down. Um, So this is this is probably a lighter version of what we'd see if our government accidentally shot down a private jet, I mean, a commercial jet. But it is a response we're seeing among the Iranian people in the country. And finally, just a quick note, the House is going to be voting on uh, sending over the articles of impeachment finally to the Senate. So to be clear, we expect the Senate to acquit the president. The president had talked for weeks about the prospect of having a big sort of flashy trial, that this would be on his turf. It seems that Mitch McConnell has won this uh, sort of strategy debate and that they are leaning towards a very quick process. So could very well be over within a week or two. 
it always takes the Senate longer to do things than they say it's going to. So I wouldn't <laughs> expect a few days, yeah. uh, but definitely less than a month. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's not that it tasted bad to me, but I think there's still that element in my brain of like, this feels wrong. Like I can't turn that off. You know that it's not pork. You know that it's plant-based, but just to have something be called pork and to be trying a flavor that you've never been able to try before is quite a mental hurdle. Joining us now is Abrar Alhiti, reporter at CNET. Thanks for joining us, Abrar. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to be talking about impossible foods. It's one of the things we've been talking about on this podcast for a long time. These companies really trying to find alternatives in the meat game. The first thing that came across from Impossible Foods and even uh, Beyond Meat was beef, burger patties, things like that. But the latest offering from Impossible Foods is Impossible Pork. And they debuted it at CES 2020. And there's been a lot of write-ups about it. Abrar, tell us a little bit about Impossible Pork and what the overall goal that Impossible Foods wants to accomplish with this. So this is the latest product from Impossible Foods. It's kind of their next challenge. So after kind of perfectly replicating the taste and smell and look of real beef, the next obvious choice for them was apparently pork. And the CEO had told me that pork is such a common meat across the world and particularly in Asia, which is a market that Impossible Foods really wants to tackle. And so this was kind of a clear choice for them. And so this is something that looks and tastes and smells like real pork. It has that pinkish color when it's raw and then you cook it and it's juicy. And it's fascinating to see how something that is absolutely plant-based can look so believable. So it's supposed to replace any recipe that calls for ground pork meat. The Impossible Pork is gluten-free and they're saying that they're designing it, trying to get certification for kosher and halal. And we'll get to that in a moment because um, you're actually a lifelong practicing Muslim and you tried this out. So that's a very interesting aspect I want to get into, but we'll do that after we finish talking about the Impossible Pork. Impossible Foods, they say they're really trying to take animals out of the food chain. This is one of their chief goals for a variety of reasons, climate change and then biodiversity also. So this is something that the company really emphasizes is the sustainability angle. And so they say that creating plant-based meats has a smaller environmental footprint than meat from animals. They say that it takes a fraction of land and water to make something like impossible pork. And so if you have to cut back on the need for crops that are used to feed animals, and that also means you cut back on fertilizer and pesticides, and they say that that could obviously also be better for the environment. And it's interesting too, because with the impossible burger, that's something that they use to cater to vegans. And so with the possible pork, it's interesting because part of it is, yes, we want to cater to vegans, but it's also the fact that they're seeking halal certification. The fact that they're seeking kosher certification means that they're also targeting people who perhaps would eat a meat if they could. And so it's not just vegans that they're focused on, but it's this broader range of people as well. So in the real world, obviously, beef comes from cows and pork comes from pigs. What's in this impossible pork? It seems like it's very similar to the impossible burger. So a lot of the ingredients are similar. So they have the main protein in impossible pork is soy. And then their fat sources are sunflower oil and coconut oil. And that kind of gives it that juiciness and and allows it to kind of cook very similarly to real meat. There are amino acids, vitamins and sugars and things like that. And then kind of the critical element is heme, which is essentially this iron containing compound that's found in all living organisms. And that kind of adds to the meaty flavor and aroma. And that's kind of what makes it seem so believable. 
And how healthy is it? Because for some time, this kind of arose, well, at least on the meat side of it, the impossible meat side of it, they were saying, well, this is a highly processed food. It's not very healthy for you. So how many calories are in this in the pork side of it? What does this look like? That is still kind of a huge concern among many people when it comes to these plant-based things is how processed are these products and is it really better for you than meat? And that's kind of a debate that I'm sure will amplify kind of in the days and months to come. But Impossible Pork does have fewer calories than 70% lean pork. So there's 220 calories in Impossible Pork versus 350 calories in a four-ounce serving of regular pork. There's also less fat, less saturated fat. There's no cholesterol, but it does have 420 milligrams of sodium, whereas regular pork has 80 milligrams. So there are trade-offs, of course. Yeah, that's sodium. And then, you know, for a lot of people that are very health conscious, that sodium content is a killer. A lot of people don't want to opt for higher sodium in their diets. So we still don't know exactly when impossible pork will be widely available to the masses, but the first offering we will get will be at Burger King, actually, in some type of impossible croissant, which I think they're calling it. So it's going to be impossible sausage, right? That's exactly right. You got your croissant, egg and cheese, and then this impossible sausage. And that'll roll out to 139 Burger King restaurants in five test regions throughout the country. There's always detractors to something like this. You know, for a lot of people, they're thinking, oh, you know, just it's another option. It's an alternative. But for people that are in these businesses and are direct competitors to something like this, they obviously have a lot of problems. We saw this a lot with beef producers But the National Pork Producers Council, they released a statement saying, don't call this pork. This is not pork. But I really feel like this business is really set on the fact that people know from the get go that this is plant based, that this is not real meat. Absolutely. Especially given, you know, how much attention and hype these kinds of products get. It's something that people talk about constantly. And so I think it would be fairly safe to assume that people aren't going to be duped by the fact that there, in fact, is no pork and something like impossible pork, given the conversations that are around these kinds of products. Let's get into the really interesting aspect of it, because as we said, you know, they are seeking halal and kosher certification. Abrar, you are a lifelong practicing Muslim. Tell us, first off, the dietary restrictions that you follow, and then how this experience was, because you did taste this. I did taste it, and it was quite an experience. You know, as part of my faith, I can't eat pork. And so this was the first time that I was able to kind of know what that tastes like. So there, you know, I think most people who avoid pork for religious reasons or whatever reasons that they have will say that there have been accidents, right? You bite into something and there's a piece of bacon or you bite into something and you realize there's pepperoni under the cheese slice that you thought was just a cheese pizza. But this was the first time that I was intentionally kind of eating something and, you know, not immediately spitting it out. And so it was kind of a bit of a hurdle mentally to be like, okay, this is something I'm going to try. Quick question. Is it only pork that you don't eat or are you vegetarian? It's only pork. So all other meats I can eat. So this is kind of like, all right, here's what a new meat tastes like. And I have no idea what this tastes like. So that element was really cool of like, here's a new flavor that I've never tried before. So that was interesting. And I think it took a minute and I ate it kind of in a sandwich. So there was carrots and the bun and the sauce and everything. So then I tried to taste it and it kind of has a mild flavor, which I'm told pork kind of does too, until you kind of add the seasoning. And then I broke off a couple pieces of it to try by itself. It's not that it tasted bad to me, but I think there's still that element in my brain of like, this feels wrong. Like I can't turn that off. And going back to that idea of labeling, of course, you know, as I just mentioned, you know that it's not pork, you know that it's plant-based, but just to have something be called pork and to be doing something and to be trying a flavor that you've never been able to try before is quite a mental hurdle. I'm sure a lot of that is in your head, even in the article that you wrote for CNET, you said, you know, my brain and my stomach had a hard time processing (laughs) 
and that after about 15 minutes, you felt a little queasy. Uh, how did that work out for you? At first, my colleagues were asking me, how do you feel right after I had tried it? And I was like, I feel totally fine. It's totally normal. And then after a little bit of time, I was like, okay, no, this is strange. And it was hard to separate how much of it is in my head and how much of it actually is my stomach being like, this isn't normal. But I felt that same way with the Impossible Burger. And I can eat beef. But I think after I had tried the Impossible Burger, I think it's something my stomach isn't used to because it's not actual beef. It's these processed elements. And so your body is like, okay, this is something new. And I think that's probably common for most things that are foreign to your body. But it was interesting. It took a few hours for me to be able to kind of have a proper meal after that. <laughs> I mean, it's just so interesting. You know, like you said, it's in your head. You know that it's not pork, but the courage that it takes to get over that, to get over what your brain has been taught, what you've been practicing for so long, just yeah. to get over that is tough. You also spoke to an imam and a rabbi about their thoughts and, you know, how it might play in the larger communities. As we keep saying, you know, they are eventually going to try to look for a kosher and halal certification. So what were their reactions to this? It was interesting to see that because the imam was very much like, if somebody asked me if I should try this, I would not recommend it unless it was somebody who was converting and had a hard time kind of completely cutting pork out of their diet. He actually kind of compared it to vaping and smoking. He would say, I wouldn't recommend somebody start vaping if they've never smoked. But if somebody's already a smoker and they're trying to wean off of that, I'd be like, okay, you know, if vaping is your way out of that, then sure, go ahead. And so he kind of drew that comparison for me. I spoke to two rabbis and one of them, Rabbi Cook, said he also isn't particularly drawn to an impossible pork product because he doesn't feel like it's meat that he misses in his life. But there's also that element of if somebody is choosing a kosher lifestyle that might take different meanings for them. So it could be, okay, I want to only put things that are good for the environment and good for my body into my system. And that could be, okay, I'm going to have a more kind of health conscious, you know, I'm only going to eat things that are health conscious. And so maybe they could use that argument to consume something like impossible pork, having something plant-based and better for the environment. The other rabbi I spoke with said, you know, if it's made from kosher ingredients and it's kosher certified, even if it tastes and smells like a non-kosher product, it's totally safe. And if there's something that makes the world of kosher available to more people and accessible to more people, then that's a good thing. It seems still from both sides that if you are part of the faith and you grew up this way, for the most part, it's not something that you're necessarily missing. It's just yeah. a byproduct of you've never had it before, right? So if yeah. it's not something that you're not necessarily missing in your life, why go this extra step to go through with trying it and things like that? Exactly. That was kind of my takeaway was, you know, I can eat chicken, I can eat lamb, I can eat beef. Is it really necessary for me to, you know, walk into a Burger King and order an impossible croissant when I could just have like anything else? You know, there's so many other options. And for other people, hopefully there are other options for them as well. But yeah, when you have that mental hurdle, is it really worth kind of trying to leap yeah. over? Well, I mean, work might take you there, so you might have another <laughs> article about the Impossible <laughs> Croissant, which for Impossible Thank Foods, you. though, they haven't really let up exactly where they're going next. I know they want to get into the seafood game. Chicken, obviously, another uh, big meat that people eat across the world. People are like expecting for that, but they haven't really signaled where they're going next. Yeah, they haven't. The CEO told me that, you know, chicken is something that we can kind of anticipate in the near future. They kind of have understood how to crack the meat flavor. And once you kind of figure it out for one thing, you, it's easy to translate it into other things, but figuring out the texture and all of that takes a little bit of work. And he kind of hinted at, you know, impossible bacon coming in the near future, but there is no clear word yet on where exactly the company will be going next. Abrar Alhidi, reporter at CNET. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.